Good morning, guys. Welcome to North Boulevard. Those of you online, really glad that you're with us. It's been a good week. And Shawnee, you had like a, you were so well played this morning when you, at the first service when you were talking about the number of baptisms in the Bibles. And I don't want to spend that ammo if you're about to spend it. But it was so cool. Sean was saying uh, we have like 12 or 14 more baptisms, but we can't get enough Bibles for all of them right now. We're baptizing faster than they can print Bibles in the world. So, <laughs> Y'all know, it's funny, our executive minister, uh, Ray Holland, was the uh, public works director for the city of Long Beach, California, before he retired and they moved here. And he was over the port of Long Beach. And I just want you to notice, when he left, everything backed up in the port of Long Beach. So that's how good he is. I just thought y'all should know that. Um, and there are probably, you know, uh, seven million Bibles sitting in, uh, on a ship <laughs> somewhere in Long Beach. Anyway, glad you're here. I'm going to start out with this. We're gonna, actually, we're going to look at uh, John 13 and 14. We're doing the seven I am statements. Well, I shouldn't say the seven. There are more than seven, but we pick seven I am statements between now and the end of the year. And the one we're going to look at today comes out of chapter 14, but I'm going to include 13. We're going to kind of deal with several of them. So here's my invitation. Get a Bible out, open it up, put it in your lap so that when we look at the verses, you can immediately engage in uh, what the Word of God actually says. So novelist... Thomas Wolfe, not Tom Wolfe, the more recent novelist, but the uh, uh, early 20th century novelist, in his book, God's Lonely Man, made this remark, quote, the whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon peculiar to myself and a few other solitary men, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence, loneliness. You know, it's the theme of a thousand songs, works of art, plays. It's actually the theme of a television program that came out in 2015. The premise of the program is 10 individuals are taken full of gear, plenty of equipment, and each put in a very isolated place somewhere far, far removed from civilization. Those who last the longest win the prize. The one who stays the longest typically wins half a million dollars. There's seven, seven or eight seasons that are out now. Some have to be removed because of health reasons or maybe there's an injury. Some of them literally start to starve to death and have to be removed. But the number one reason why people leave is loneliness. They simply cannot stand to be by themselves for that period of time and have to face who they really are. I think that loneliness is probably the primal, original anxiety of every human. It's the primal fear of humans. A baby feels it. The sense that maybe I won't be cared for. The idea that maybe I'm not loved or maybe I'm not even lovable. Or the idea that Someday I'll be left on my own, or maybe I have no real purpose in life, or maybe, this is the worst part, maybe this is all there is. Jesus actually addresses the question of loneliness in our text today. I'll show you how in just a moment. He says in this very familiar text to those of you who followed him for a long time, uh, so we're in, let, me, let me catch up on it, chapters 13 through 17, that block of chapters in the book of John, constitute Jesus' farewell discourse to the apostles. He's about to be crucified. He knows that. 
and he's telling them goodbye. So if you can imagine you're in your hospital bed and this is your last goodbye to your family, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying goodbye to them before he dies. And what he says in chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, when he's asked the question, uh, you know, how can we know the way? By Thomas, how can we know the way? Jesus' answer, you know, just echoed down through the centuries, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's what you may not realize as you've heard that verse for so many years, is that Jesus is actually answering a question that was raised in chapter 13. It's the question of loneliness because Jesus has said already to the disciples, I'm about to leave. You're going to be on your own. Here's how he puts it in verses 33 and then down in verse 36. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. So if you can imagine yourself as one of the original apostles, They have crawled out on a limb with Jesus that is so risky, so dangerous, so otherworldly. And now Jesus has said to them in this final discourse, we're about to cut the branch off. And they're terrified. And he perceives their terror. And he knows that they're afraid of being left alone. And so the whole section is essentially Jesus' response to loneliness. And his response is, I'm going to be the way for you. I'm going to be the truth, the only truth that matters. I'm going to be your life. So what I want to say in this lesson is, I really do think that loneliness is the primal fear of most humans, and Jesus is the final answer to loneliness. Now, if you don't see that yet, hang with me, because honestly, even when I started the lesson, I felt like it was a little bit of a stretch, because I can't touch him not in traditional ways. I don't feel them the same way I might feel a child or a spouse. And there are times that I have all these doubts in my head. So, so is it not a little too much to say that Jesus resolves our loneliness? Hang with me. First thing I want to do is talk about loneliness for just a second. And I want to say there are really two kinds of loneliness that most of us deal with. The first we'll call situational loneliness. These are lonely feelings in response to things that happen to us situational loneliness. By the way, most of us experience this. Sometimes we experience a lot in our lives, situational loneliness. So things like the end of a relationship, a divorce, will leave you ragged with loneliness because it's not only the fact that you've lost a spouse, but you were rejected in some cases by a spouse. The death of a spouse If you're dating someone, you know, they send you a text message, it's over with, and that's how you found out that those last two years don't mean anything anymore. It's actually a very lonely thing. It's this kind of loneliness, as I said, that is really sort of the heartbeat of every every song Nashville's ever written. Situational loneliness. An unhappy relationship is actually the source of a lot of loneliness. Probably not many people are as lonely as married people in unhappy marriages. It's like a terrible form of loneliness to be living with someone and to be lonely. Pain from a past disordered relationship. So if you grew up abused or you grew up in a house where you had a distant remote father or a mother with mental health issues, these things can create loneliness. They're situational. That is, it's a loneliness in response to a situation, but it may stalk you for the rest of your life. There is a The loneliness that comes from a new job or going to a new school. 
when we were raising the kids, they ended up going to several different schools. And, you know, every time was such an adjustment. And it was always so painful for me to watch what we were putting them through. Here's a new school. When you move, here's a new school. And you realize you're just creating a lot of loneliness when you move, even if it's just across town. You know, you're saying bye to a house full of memories. You're spending all that time packing and so forth. And here you are facing really these feelings that at least could be a little bit of a haunt. Health problems can create lonely feelings when you're not sure how your body's going to function, whether you're even going to be here in another year, that these sorts of issues with our bodies provoke all these thoughts, these echoes in our minds. Fear about an upcoming decision or fear about the future. Okay, these are situational examples of loneliness. Then there's a kind of loneliness, I couldn't think of a better term, so I'm going to use a philosophical term. I'll just call it existential loneliness. And here's what that is. Existential loneliness is not really in response to a circumstance or situation. It is the gnawing feeling that most humans have that we are somehow all alone in the universe. That somehow we're not loved or not lovable or that maybe this is all there is. So where situational loneliness produces the bulk of Nashville's music, existential loneliness produces the bulk of the world's philosophy, where we're all wrestling with the idea that there's something wrong with this universe. Something's not working right. And I want to say that at the end of the day, this kind of generalized anxiety, this generalized loneliness is really the result of the fall of humanity. So think about it. Genesis chapter 2 God creates Adam, he puts him in the Garden of Eden, and uh, then he creates a woman. And the two of them are what? They're walking in the cool of the evening with God. That must have been the best part of the Garden of Eden. We were with God. We had communion with God. We were created for that kind of authentic, intimate communion with God, and it was sin that broke it. Existential loneliness is the realization that I am still in a broken state that I was supposed to be connected to something and I'm not. It's a gnawing feeling that can stay with you your whole life. Now I wanna talk about loneliness as a spiritual alarm because at the end of the day, loneliness really functions in our life in a way similar to thirst, thirst when you're thirsty. Think about it. When you're thirsty, your body is saying to you, you need water, you're in trouble. When you're thirsty, you need to get something to drink. It's your body's way of saying you're dehydrated. There's a problem. Your muscles are going to cease working. Your organs are shut down and so forth. You got to get water. In the same way, loneliness is the soul's way of saying you're disconnected from God. Every act of loneliness is some form of alarm that says you're not right with God yet. You're not connected to your God. So, uh, it was C.S. Lewis who made the remark that dying of thirst doesn't mean there's a glass of water on your table, but it does mean you were designed to drink water. And being lonely doesn't mean that you have a friend on the, sitting on the pew next to you because they may not be your friend, but it does mean that you were designed for intimate, authentic relationships. It's an alarm, a spiritual alarm that means that each of us was created by God to have deep relationships. And so when Jesus talks about being with us, as we'll see in a moment, he's really solving sort of a primordial problem that we have, that primal sense that maybe I'm not loved. I, I, I thought it might be helpful to put a few signs of loneliness up. So it's kind of risky because I don't want to like 
just rub your face in your loneliness and make you go home, you know, feeling worse than you did when you came. But sometimes it's helpful to have someone describe something. You know why it's helpful, by the way? Because it kind of normalizes it and it helps you to think, okay, I'm not the only one. And that's a real helpful thing when you're lonely to know, okay, well, somebody understands me, which is actually one of our first points. That one of the signs of loneliness is the feeling that nobody really understands me. It's a very isolating feeling. It's the feeling of drifting in the universe and nobody gets me. When you, as a teenager, are desperate for a girlfriend or boyfriend, when you're desperate for, I'm not saying attracted to someone, but you're desperate for it, uh, it's not an ugly thing, it's not a terrible thing, but it does mean you're lonely. It also means, by the way, that you're likely to compromise some standards because you're so desperate. When you feel that nobody shares your view of the world, which, by the way, pretty much every time I drive on the roads in Rutherford County, I feel this, nobody shares my view of the roads here. As a joke, it, it was really funny when I practiced it, and it's obvious that it's not so funny here, but um, it may be a sign of loneliness or it could be something else. Nobody shares my view of the world. How about this one? When you find it difficult to make friends, that's often a sign of loneliness. Or when you feel out of place around most people, you just feel socially awkward around most people. Or when, when you are in a quiet and alone place, you start to feel sadness. So here's the thing, being alone is not the same as being lonely. A lot of us enjoy being alone. But if you're alone and it always brings feelings of sadness, that's a sign of loneliness. And by the way, that's the thing that happens in this television program. They get alone and they have to look at themselves hours and hours upon uh, hours and they have no distractions. There are no shiny screens to take their attention off of their loneliness. And suddenly they have to look at who they really are. And it's not good. Here's one. If you have the constant wish that you could redo parts of your life. You just wish you could redo them. Or this is, this is I got this from Martin uh, uh, Seligman who is a psychologist written several books. But one that I would recommend to you is called Flourish. Flourish. That's the name of a simple. Flourish. He says that people, and he used the word 4 a.m., but I get up around 4 a.m., so it doesn't really work for me. And y'all usually start sending, Tom Beckwith sends me text messages at 4 a.m., so this doesn't really apply. Um, but I've, I've changed it to two. But what Seligman says is this. If you have somebody to call at 2 a.m., if you really have somebody that you could call at 2 a.m., you live, statistically speaking, you will, if answering that question, yes, you live longer than the guy who does not have someone to call at 2 a.m. Believe it or not, that simple statement will predict how long you will live. So do you have somebody you can call at 2 a.m. with a problem? I got, uh, Julie and I were talking about this the other night, and I was saying, you know, outside the family, I'm trying to figure out who I would call. And I, f I figured out who I would call at 2 a.m. I actually have somebody, David Coggin. So if you don't know David, he leads the Barnabas Vision. I would call David Coggin at 2 a.m. And David Coggin would come and do anything I asked him to do. And he would enjoy doing it. And when I said that to Julie, she said, well, that'd be any Coggin. Oh, that's what all the Coggins feel that way. So if you don't know a Coggin, I will say, I'll give you their cell phone number. <laughs> and the sermon's basically done. Just call a Coggin and you got everything's resolved. That it really is kind of a thing in the family. Like they're just the kind who, if you, when you call, they're there. Do you have a 2 a.m. friend? That's what Seligman is saying. If not, it could be a sign of loneliness. Now, just before we get to our text, I got to do one more thing, which is I want to make sure you understand that there are some terrible responses to loneliness that most of us go through at some point in our lives. And I do want to say about these responses, they're not solutions, they're responses. 
They don't solve loneliness. They generally only distract you from feelings of loneliness. They're distractions, not resolutions. Chemicals, alcohol, pornography. So pornography is a distraction from loneliness. And that's, that's, what it, that's its function. It takes your mind off of your loneliness. That's one reason why people will look at porn even if they're not interested. They'll look, I mean, a porn addict looks at porn even when they're not lusting. Because it's a great distraction from what's really hollow and broken on the inside. Reckless relationships are a response many people uh, assume to feelings of loneliness. I'll just give you one. The fact that so many teenagers uh, are becoming parents in the U.S., unmarried, uncommitted, and without a husband or a wife around, is an indication that they're trying to solve a problem. Remember, each of these is actually an attempt to solve the problem. The problem is loneliness. These are, just poor, uh, these are just poor responses to loneliness. But it's an effort to solve the problem of loneliness. By the way, we could actually express a little bit of compassion towards people. Because they really are trying to solve a problem. They just don't have the right solution yet. Uh, manic emotions, fear and jealousy and hatred and rage, blaming other people. Jealousy is a perfect sign of loneliness. Because in jealousy, what you're saying is, I'm afraid someone's going to take away the one thing that I desperately need not to feel lonely. E a person who's easily insulted is generally a lonely person. Because their pride is so fragile. It was built in, 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 uh, in response to some emptiness inside. I, I just want you to see these are responses to loneliness. They're just inadequate. They're not constructive. Narcissism is a poor response to loneliness. The idea that I have to be the special guy, that I, that, that I need to be the center of attention, that I deserve to be the guy that it put, they put the spotlight on. This is, you know what it is? It's just a poor response to loneliness. So on the one hand, we want to teach people narcissism is not a good response. But on the other hand, we can at least be sympathetic to the fact that they're trying to solve a real problem. And it's a human problem, the problem of loneliness, hurting other people. This is an odd one, but people will deliberately hurt one another when they're lonely because because they want someone else to share their hurt, which is pretty much insane. But we do it. We lash out at people because we're lonely. And somehow it makes us feel better to know that we hurt somebody. How about this one? Shopping, the accumulation of stuff, the constant need for newer stuff, another toy. It's, all it is is a mask for loneliness. It's an effort to cover over what's really going on in this one. We'll stop on this one. Busyness. You know, some of the loneliest people in the world are the most successful people in the world. And there's a correlation there because they can't stop working because work is how they cover their loneliness. It's a mask. The minute they stop working, these people don't retire well because the minute they stop working, they have to look inside and they don't like what they see in there. So they just stay busy. Very successful oftentimes. But it's a mask for a deep-seated loneliness. These efforts to resolve loneliness are only distractions from the pain. They're not resolutions. They're distractions. They're not a cure. That's because only Jesus is the cure. And I want to say it this way. Your friends will possibly let you down. Your husband and your wife may well let you down. It's happened a lot in this room. Even your children may let you down. And some of you grew up in families where your parents let you down. 
And if you hadn't noticed yet, your church can let you down too. Your ministers can let you down. Your elders can let you down. Your health can let you down. Your body can let you down. Your stuff can let you down. There's only one that will not let you down. And that's Jesus. And that's why he says with confidence, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way to the Father, and that's through me. It is not just a claim that Jesus is making that he is divine and the Son of God. He really is telling you all these other things might be helpful at times, but I'm the only one who can get you to where you want to be. He's the only one who can get us to where we want to be. So here's what I want to do. Using some of the verses out of chapters 13 and 14, I want you to see that Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is an imperative for us to do at least the following. First, to immerse ourselves in God's mediating remedies for loneliness. It's kind of an awkward way to say it. Here's the thing. Though Jesus is the ultimate way to God, the only way to God, He actually provides us with others to help us with our loneliness. So we go back again to Genesis chapter 2. Adam was the CEO of the Garden of Eden. It's kind of a big deal. You know, the, what could Adam not do? He was the CEO of the Garden of Eden. And yet, it still wasn't enough. He was lonely. And in response to this, God gave him a mediating response to his loneliness. The ultimate response is God himself. But God understood Adam needed something he could touch. Something he could hug. You know, something that he could say, wow, that was a rough day, wasn't it? If you had rough days in the Garden of Eden. And so God gave him a wife. That's a mediating response to Adam's loneliness. And I want you to see that when Jesus is talking about how he is the resolution to loneliness, watch how he starts in John chapter 13. He starts by saying, I'm giving you each other. Like you are part of my answer to someone else's loneliness. That's a really important thing for you guys to hear. Because even while you're a wounded person, you're a wounded healer. Like you have the power of healing someone else's wounds, even though you yourself are wounded. And so here's what Jesus says. I'm giving you guys a new commandment. Love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you're my disciple if you love one another. So we actually are a partial resolution to the loneliness of others. That's why the church is so important. The church isn't important because we need you. Like, just remind yourself, I just say this as clearly as I know how. There will come a day, maybe not even that far down the road, when North Boulevard ceases to exist, statistically speaking. Think about it. How many churches that were planted in the 1700s are still around? Go, go to Western Turkey, to Asia Minor, to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Not a single one of them's there. Go across North Africa and look at where, where Christianity, it was almost a cradle of Christianity for centuries in the fourth and fifth centuries. Hardly any churches there. One day we're going to cease to exist. It's not that North Boulevard needs you, it's that we need each other. That's really a different way of thinking about it. It's not an institution that needs your time and your volunteer hours and your money. It's us who need each other. And if we don't have each other, we're missing one of God's greatest mediating gifts to deal with loneliness, each other. We need friends who care about us. Like we need each other. And if things get tough, as I tried to suggest they might in the last series, we'll need each other even more. 
So we want to accept what God has given us to address our loneliness. That is the love of other people. I want to say this. The love of other people, it, it, that is a mediating gift from God. The love of stuff is never a mediating gift from God. It is only a distraction. That's where we make our mistake. Instead of loving each other, we love our toys. Loving your toy is a distraction from loneliness, not a solution. Loving other people, that's beginning the solution. So as hard as it is, and sometimes as fearful as it is, we learn to love one another. Second thing I want you to see is walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, this means a lot more than I can make of in a short little, I got like 12 minutes left in the lesson. But let me first illustrate it from the text, and then I'm just going to point it out real quickly. Jesus says, as he's preparing to go, we're in chapter 14 here in verse 15, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. By the way, the word translated advocate there is a word that means to pull somebody to your side. Put your arm around somebody. I'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be, uh, he, he lives with you and will be in you. And then Jesus goes on to say, not only will we receive the Holy Spirit, but we will do the same miracles he did and even greater miracles than he did. Let me tell you why I'm bringing this up. Some of us just either inherited, I don't think that, uh, I, I want you to know that I can't tell you how grateful I am for the people who raised me. They were far better people than I am. And so I don't, I don't want to look back and in any way suggest that my, the people who raised me didn't know what they were doing. They were like, I love them. They were great to me. The church, I can't tell you how good the church has been to me. I can't describe it. I will say though, I grew up not really expecting God to do a whole lot and regret that. Because when I don't see God doing much, I get lonely. Like, I get lonely. When I suddenly realize all this cool stuff going on around me, that's God at work, it resolves the loneliness because I realize the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is still doing signs and wonders and powers. He does them every day. They're happening at North Boulevard. They're happening all across the world. When I see them and enjoy them and celebrate them, the loneliness goes away because I'm living in the Holy Spirit now. When you see the world as spiritual, that everything is spiritual, then suddenly it's no longer the empty world of physics. It is instead a world infused, not just with angels and cherubim, not just with the Holy Spirit, but infused with all the spirits of the martyrs who've gone before us who look down and say, Lord, make it victorious, that we live in a rich and populated universe filled with spirits. We just often don't see them. I mean, it's kind of like, if I can use an old illustration, it's like a transistor radio. You guys know that right now in this room, there are all kinds of songs going right through your body. They're riding on electromagnetic waves at whatever speed of light passing through your head right now. Country songs, rap songs, there's only two I know. But they're all going through your body right now. It's just if you don't have a transistor, you don't hear it. The transistor makes it audible to you. Or you can use Wi-Fi or cell towers or whatever it is you want to use. What I'm saying is it's here, you just, you're just not tuning into it. In the same way the Holy Spirit's here, he's doing awesome things. Tune in. 
When you see him, you won't have room to be lonely. In fact, there may be times you're like, will you just look the other way for a few minutes? I got a sin I want to commit over here. Number three, trust in God's promises of a better place. This is a text that um, most of us are familiar with from our funerals. John 14, I memorized it years ago in the King James. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus' promise to us is that though he was leaving, he's coming back and he's got a place for us. A group of us went several years ago to India to visit the Believer's Church movement. It's a movement of maybe two million people. Uh, 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 thousands, I was about to say hundreds of churches, thousands, probably tens of thousands of congregations uh, in some of the wealthier areas of India, but also in some of the very poorest areas of India, we saw this. And there was something peculiar about all the buildings we saw. So we probably toured 30 different churches while we were there. Every one of them, regardless of how sophisticated the building was or how um, simple it was, grass thatched hut church buildings, they all had a clock on them. They all had a clock on them. In fact, it looked at times as though they put the clock up first and they built the building around the clock. And so I was asking one of the leaders, what, what's the deal with all the clocks? You know, I mean, I'm assuming it's too, the sermons are too long because that's why we have 30 clocks on the walls back there. <laughs> About every month somebody puts a new clock up, uh, you know, maybe he's not seeing those. Let's try over here. Uh, and they, uh, the leader, you know what the leader said? First of all, he said, well, they're Hindu. They're, we've converted them out of Hinduism. And Hinduism is cyclical. Time is cyclical. It has no direction. We need them to learn. That's not how time works. But he said, the real reason we put the clocks up, you know what it is? We want them to live understanding that the time is limited. Live with the end in sight. Live understanding that Jesus is coming back. Quit, quit forgetting that the clock is ticking on the return of Jesus and that he's already prepared a place for you. You've got a room already there with your name on it. When we think that way, it helps us deal with this nagging sense of maybe I'm all alone. I'm not all alone. My nameplate's already on my room. It's probably some poster of some cool guy up there, you know, working out or something. Who knows what my room looks like when we get there. And then I'm going to end here. Live with Jesus, don't just know about Jesus. So some of us have good theology about Jesus, but we actually don't have much of a relationship with Jesus. In fact, for some of our churches, we've hesitated even to use that language. We've been afraid to say have a relationship with Jesus because it sounded too weird, too squishy for us, too emotional, too feelings-based. I got an idea. Why don't you give him everything? Let him have your mind and your doctrine, but why don't you give him your heart and your emotions and your squishiness too? Give him all of it. Come to know who he is. Here's how he puts it. He says, because I live, you will live. On that day, you will realize I'm in my Father, you are in me, and what? I am already in you. The most beautiful place I've ever been on planet Earth, I think I can say this uh, without thinking much about it, is Chamonix, France. It is, uh, I mean, just look how beautiful it is. Mont Blanc is right there. There are glaciers there. Uh, it's a, the flowers are gorgeous. It, you know, it's, it's Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg on steroids. And I hope you can see how beautiful it is. No, you're just looking at a map. Here's the deal. A lot of us only have a map of Jesus. 
But when you go, it's phenomenal. The real thing is so much better than just a map about him. What I'm suggesting is already, if you were baptized, already inside of you lives the way, the truth, and the life. Look inside and see the Jesus who's already there. It's far better than a map. It's the real thing. And if you want to know Jesus, can I just throw you a few more texts here out of chapter 13 and 14? First, obey his commands. The reason I want to say that is not just because I want to harp on obedience, because there's a rhythm to the life of Jesus that once you adopt, deals with many of your feelings of loneliness. That a a rhythm in life really helps people. You know this about child rearing, don't you? That generally speaking, if you give children boundaries and a rhythm in life, they grow up with fewer dysfunctions. Then if you let them just live a chaotic life, a chaotic life actually settles inside of us as a loneliness. And so by obeying Jesus and following the rhythms of his life, we find our purpose. We find a direction. That's why we learn to serve like Jesus. You remember in the very same text, chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet and then he says, what I've done, I want you to do. When we find the rhythm of Jesus' life in our life, it actually helps us with all the issues that we face. Don't underestimate the power of rhythm in your life. And then, uh, as I said, look inside and see the Jesus who's there. Here's how he puts it. You're going to be in me and I'm going to be in you. I, I just want to give you this final gift this gift in a story. So don't come up just yet. So I had read about the gift of unceasing prayer 30 years ago and decided I want this. I want to pray without ceasing as First Thessalonians says. And I tried everything. I've told some of y'all this story before. I may have said it in a sermon. I tried all kinds of tricks to learn how to pray every waking moment. That's what I wanted to do. Um, By the way, y'all know there's a a church in Kansas City that started a worship service, I think it was 1998, and it hasn't ended yet. Are y'all aware of that? Uh, Hernhut is the place where they stay. It's a a worship service that hasn't stopped yet. And I said, okay, that's, that's, I want my life like that in prayer. I want to be praying without ceasing. So when I first started trying this, we we didn't have cell phones that had alarms. So I had a little alarm in my pocket and I'd set it so that, you know, every, hour I would pray and every minute maybe for three seconds I would pray then I would like try to structure my day and it wouldn't work I couldn't make it work I really tried for a couple of years off and on I just wanted I wanted to like get to where I prayed without ceasing and finally one day I said to the Lord in prayer I'm done you've given a commandment that can't be obeyed I've tried everything to pray without ceasing there's all these distractions and, um, and I get tired, and I'm, tar- I'm done. If you want me to pray without ceasing, you're going to have to give it to me. And instantly, he gave it to me. I'm not bragging because I didn't do it. He did it. Now, I do want you to know, I can turn it off, and sometimes I do because, like I say, sometimes I'm not, I don't really want him to see what I'm up to. But you know what it is? It's like when I stop trying, you know the voice that runs in your head all the time? And by the way, if you have two of them running in your head, this sermon, you need to go see somebody else. This sermon's not really for you. But that voice that runs in your head, in my head, it's always talking to God. I'm not bragging. It's something God gave me. But I can't get lonely because he's always in there talking to me. We're always talking to each other. I'm praying right now. 
He and I are talking about this sermon right now in my head. And I, he's saying to me, the clock's down to 22 seconds, Dave. What are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm not done on this story so good. I got to get to this story. We, literally, it really is happening that way. As I say, I can stop it. I have the power to just like shut it down. But it's one of the most reassuring gifts God has ever given me. We're always in conversation. If you said to me, where is your God? It's like, that's a foolish question to me. Because he and I don't ever stop talking. So ask God to give you the gift of unceasing prayer as a response to the problem of loneliness. I want to tell this last quick story. Not many of us are familiar with the work of Charlie Duke. He was the 10th astronaut to walk on the moon, and that means, you know, nine others got the glory before he did. He was the youngest. I have just jotted down some of the awards that Charlie Duke received in his lifetime. He was a brigadier general in the U.S. Air Force, honorary doctorate from South Carolina, an honorary doctorate from Francis Marion University, honorary doctorate in philosophy from Clemson University, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, Manned Spacecraft Center Certificate of Commendation. Two different states have a, had a year named after Charlie Duke, Texas did, as well as North Carolina. Uh, he was inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame, inducted into the Texas Science Hall of Fame, inducted, uh, inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. His name is inscribed on the astronaut monument in Iceland. He actually has an asteroid named after him. What I'm trying to say is Charlie Duke has pretty much everything a guy could want. There was just one thing he didn't have, peace. He didn't have any peace. So when he landed on the moon and he looked back, he commented on how lonely that place looked. His wife, Dolly, Dottie, I should say, she also failed to have peace. She was a very lonely person, uh, clinically depressed and at times suicidal. He left a photograph, Charlie Duke left a photograph on the surface of the moon of his family, him, his wife, his two kids. And he says later, it's kind of a sham because we didn't have much of a family. We were all pretty lonely. And in sort of an act of desperation, in 1978, they went to a local church just to see what God would do. Got invited to a Bible study, and over the course of several weeks, she gave her life to Jesus, and he began to notice how changed she was. And Duke got more and more involved. He says, I still remember sitting and opening a Bible and starting to read, and my heart being changed by Jesus right then and there. So now about 30 years ago, just as the old Soviet Union was collapsing, he was invited to speak to a group of physics students in the old Soviet Union who were talking about what they would call cosmonauts. And in his testimony, he just pointed out that no matter all the other things, the resolution to his loneliness was Jesus. Watch this 30-second clip and we'll end. And I walked all over the world I walked on other worlds without a knowledge of God. And it was an exciting adventure, and I'd do it again. But it was not enough. The walk on the moon lasted three days, but the walk with Jesus lasts forever. Most of you here will never be a cosmonaut. It takes much training. Uh, you have to be dedicated. Those are good qualities to have. And so few of us will ever walk on the moon. But even the little children here can walk with God. The walk on the moon did not change my life. The walk with Jesus has changed my life. 
Yeah, uh, isn't that a cool thing? Here's how Jesus wraps it up in John chapter 14. I am leaving, he says. It's true. You can't reach out and touch Jesus the same way you can a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, a puppy dog. By the way, dogs are mediating solutions to loneliness as well. They really are. I mean, think about it. We do not deserve dogs. We don't deserve them. They're the sweetest. We just don't. Now, cats are a different story, but a dog? (laughs) We don't deserve them. God gives us dogs in some way to sort of resolve some issue that's inside of us. But here's what Jesus says. That really kind of detracted from that climactic moment, didn't it? The whole dog thing. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. I do think loneliness is the primordial anxiety of humanity. Jesus is the cure. So I invite you to Jesus. We'll stand up and sing, and if we can help you, go to the back or online, punch that prayer uh, tab. We'll be happy to help you. Let's sing.